Yahweh, we thank you so much for who you are. Um, There's just no end to how much we can praise you for. Once again, just an incredibly complex, knowledgeable, awesome God, but also as a loving God. We just pray that you guide us through your word today, that you would just speak to us. We beg that you would speak to us and open up your truth to us, allow it to transform us, and just help us keep building more dots so that we can connect more into the picture of who you are and what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I begin, I um, need to clarify something from last week. Um, We were talking about Melchizedek. And I guess I, a couple of people mentioned the fact that um, they didn't know whether I was saying that Melchizedek was not a real person or not. Um, let me clarify it. Melchizedek was a very real person. Okay? And then there's nothing wrong with that. That was like, I probably was emphasizing the literary part so much that um, I overemphasized it to the exclusion of the historical figureness of them all. I absolutely, positively believe that every single character in the Bible really, truly lived. Um, in fact, that's my big angle as a teacher in like New First Testament literatures. I want my students to understand that these are very real people. In fact, I spend probably just as much teaching history of the surrounding nations as I do the Bible, just so that they can understand that these people are real. Um, in fact, what's really cool is we've now discovered some writings from the early time period of Abraham, and there's lots of people named Abraham and Adam, like, before the people are saying, oh, we've never found these names anywhere. That means you made them all up. These people never existed. But we've now discovered that like, a lot of these names are out there, which means that that's just another evidence that these are real people. So Melchizedek was a very real person. He had a mother and a father. He was born... He lived as a child, grew up, became a king and a priest somewhere, ruled as a king and priest, and he died. And I don't know if he had children, but if he did, they lived on that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. Um, John and other writers said, like, if I told you everything there was about Jesus, I'd fill up all the books, the libraries of the world. And that's just Jesus. So the Bible is intentionally, and God specifically, is intentionally only recording certain things in order to communicate a story, because God's agenda is not to give you history. God's agenda is to develop a theology of who He is and how you can know Him and how He operates. Now, every time He talks about history, it is always 100% true. But He's not interested in giving you exhaustive details of history. And if you read through the Bible, there's a lot of missing information when it comes to history. So God, in His infinite wisdom and knowledge chose to exclude certain details about Melchizedek, who was a very real person, to encapsulate him in a certain light in literature so that that certain perspective in literature would more clearly point to who Christ was going to become as a very real historical figure. Does that make sense? So Melchizedek is a very verbose, complicated, very real living person. But what was recorded about him was limited to make a theological point about who Jesus is. So, very real, but a literary foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Because no one can come anywhere close to being a literal foreshadow of Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, if they did, then they would present themselves as a a competition to Christ. 
So, so hopefully that's more clear. That's kind of my fault. Sometimes I emphasize something so much that other things get excluded. But so with that, let us turn to chapter seven, verse eleven. We are in letter E, the superiority of Jesus' priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Now that the Bible has kind of unpacked Melchizedek for you, Melchizedek had his historical appearance in Genesis chapter 13. He has had his theological theological, um, unfolding in Psalm 110. Now... In Hebrews 7, the explanation of that has all been done. So now it's time to unpack who Jesus is as one who's in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11. So if perfection had in fact been possible through the Levitical priesthood, for on that basis the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise, said to be in the order of Melchizedek, and not in Aaron's order? For when the priesthood changes, a change in the law must come as well. Yet the one yet the one these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever been officiated at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord is descended from Judah. Yet Moses said nothing about priests in connection with that tribe. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not by a legal regulation about physical descendant, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is the testimony about him. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former command is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And since this was not done without a sworn affirmation, for the others have become priests without a sworn affirmation, but Jesus did so with a sworn affirmation by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently since he lives forever. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. For it is indeed fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to do every day what those priests do to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this in offering himself once and for all, for the law appoints a high priest, men subject to weakness, but the word of solemn affirmation that came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now, it's very important to understand, once again, like I mentioned last week, this argument is completely dependent upon sequencing. So you have a Melchizedek figure that appears in Genesis 13. He is pre-law. There is no law given to the people anywhere on the planet Earth by God from Mount Sinai. That He is king and priest simultaneously, holding both of those offices in one human being which is not uncommon in the ancient world. That was a very common thing to do among many people and many nations and many city-states. Then, 
we go from 2100 or 2100 BC all the way up to 1446 BC. At that point, the law is introduced through Mount uh, Moses at Mount Sinai. In the law, God then gave a law basically splitting the priesthood and the kingship into two people and two offices. So God made it very clear that those who come from Judah are to be the head leaders of authority, ultimately the kings who will lead over Israel. Now that's kind of hinted at, and it will become more fully realized through David, and that only the Levites can be priests. So a Levite is not allowed to be king. And a Judaite is not allowed to be a priest. Period. Those are forbidden. We mentioned this last week too, that when Saul tried to take both offices, there was serious judgment upon him. He disobeyed the prophet and he made a sacrifice without him. And there were serious consequences. Uzziah, one of the kings after Hezekiah, he goes into the temple and he makes a sacrifice and God pretty much, the priests all come running out like, no, 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 please don't do that. You're going to disgrace everything. And God struck him down there on the spot. Um, even David, even though he's not quite functioning as a priest by taking on the ephod and dancing with the Ark of the Covenant, he does take way too much upon himself. And there are consequences that follow that. So there are examples of kings who take too much upon themselves. And there's others in kings, but they're the kind of like the kings that we don't ever remember. Um, who take too much upon themselves as far as priest and king. And God judged them and condemned them for that. They violated the law. Then, you have David, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's writing Psalm 110, and he says, You are a king and a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Speaking of the one who will come from David, but who is also greater than David. And we've already talked about that, that that clearly reveals that the Messiah is God and man. Man, because he comes from David, but God, because he's... David's superior. So here becomes the question. If the law forbids king and priest, then how can David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pronounce the Messiah to be both king and priest? And so the argument that the author of Hebrews is going to make, that if there was a time where Melchizedek could be king and priest simultaneously and still honor God, then followed by a time where you could not be king and priest, only according to the law, then for Christ to be king and priest, that means the law is going to be set aside. There's no room for the law anymore in that. Because according to the law, it is illegal, punishable by death. Now, remember, that means if Romans says that Christ fulfills the law, then he can't violate the law. So he can't... I mean, God's law... And listen, and I'm going to try very hard. It's going to take a while. But I'm going to try very hard to give you an understanding of the law as good, holy, and from God, but at the same time set aside. That's a very hard thing because we tend to think set aside, the law must be obsolete and bad and not useful. But at the same time, we don't want to say that about God's law. But if we try to hold the law up too much, then that kind of contradicts Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And I think there's a lot of confusion today in the church about the place of the law. So I'll do my best to kind of help unpack that as much as I can. So, But just, it's going to take time. And it may not be complete tonight. So just kind of hold on to that. 
But that means that that law has to be set aside or Christ is violating it, which makes him a sinner. Because if the law is good and comes from God, then this is God's standard of righteousness, which Christ can't violate it. So we have to understand the purpose of the law in order to understand that, which we will talk about little bit by little as we go through. So it's based on sequencing. So I think we can all kind of accept, if the law forbids king and priest, and Jesus both, then something's got to give. And it's not going to be Jesus. Okay? So, he starts off by saying, So if perfection had, in fact, been possible through the Levitical priesthood, for on that basis the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise, said to be in the order of Melchizedek, and not in Aaron's order? The first thing he makes is, look, the law didn't make people perfect. Right? Now, if you've ever really gone through the First Testament, it's kind of obvious the law didn't make anybody perfect. In fact, if anything happened, Israel got worse and worse and worse and worse with the law. I mean, if you really read... I, if you have a chance to go through the First Testament, if you've never gone... I. I know I'm plugging myself and I always hate that, but I do have audio on all the First Testament books. But the thing you need to realize is that pretty much most of the people in the Bible are scumbags. I know we've lifted up people like Gideon and Samson and David up as these great men of God, but if you really look at their lives, they're, they're kind of scumbags. And the, really, the only thing that's saving them is their faith. That's really the only thing that they got for them. And of course, like, surprise, 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 Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, there's not one person, and then faith is the answer. So, what you also begin to realize is that Paul kind of makes the point that when the law comes into picture, it actually ramps up the sin of Israel. It actually becomes even greater. And we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. And part of the reason is, like, I remember as a kid, like, there's a lot of things I remember as a kid, but this one scene always sticks out. I mean, there's a lot of things I remember violating the law as a kid, but this one sticks out more prominent than ever. Um, I remember riding my bike from my cousin's house. He was about a block or two away from me, and I would ride my bike from my house to his house. And I remember always go down this one sidewalk and always stayed on the sidewalk all the time. And one day, there was all these leaves piled up in this guy's yard. And he had his son that said, don't walk on my grass, because he had just fertilized or something. The first thing I did was I just rode through his grass, plowed through the leaves, and busted them everywhere. And it was really cool and fun. Um, but what was interesting is I never had a desire to do that of all the umpteen times that I drove by his house until he told me not to through his sign. And, and, and I remember like, you see those signs where like the concrete's been freshly poured and they put the sign up, they say, don't write on it. The first thing you do is, I remember <laughs> of all places, I remember being in the Creation Museum at the, the signs where you see the planets in the sky and um, the, I forget what you call this, um, planetarium. And um, they had this little projector in the center of the room that pointed up and it said, do not touch. And my friends got a picture of me touching it and smiling. And it's like... I would have never touched it if it hadn't been more that sign. <laughs> and it's like, this is the point that Paul is making is, once we're told not what to do, and I know you've probably seen with this to your own children, it just ramps it up even more. We just kind of want to say, well, I'll show you. And it's almost like the law gives us ideas. 
And it's kind of like, you just keep your mouth shut. Maybe your kids would be less of a sinner. Um, that's not true. But sometimes that's what I feel like. So this is one of the points, is that it just ramps things up us even more. And that's what you see with Israel. And so the law actually made us more sinners. And I don't mean that literally. We can't be more sinners. We're sinners are sinners. But the reality is, not only did that, but the second point that's going to be made is, the sacrifice is what are toned for you. And if you have to keep sacrificing again and again and again, then why aren't you perfect? If an animal sacrifice can truly make you perfect, then why, why didn't you get made perfect? And so, one, we can never obey that law because death just keeps coming over and over through thousands and thousands of years. But at the same time, the sacrificial system, we, I mean, you know how many animals were sacrificed? I mean, the billions upon billions that were sacrificed, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands just on the Day of Atonement every year. And so, and get the next year comes and they've got to do it again. And the next year comes and they've got to do it again. And so this is the point. He says, just look at the track record of Israel's morality and look at how many animals have been sacrificed and you tell me that the law actually saves you. You tell me the law actually makes you perfect. There's no Jew who can argue that point. No Jew. In fact, no Jew does. I mean, now, and I'm not talking about Jews are getting in the New Age movement, all, but that doesn't count. But I mean like a true Orthodox Jew. So therefore, if the priesthood can actually make you perfect, then there would have been no need for another one. And there would have been no need for Jesus, or especially a Jesus who comes from Judah. Therefore, the fact that we have a new priesthood through Jesus means that everything's set aside. And this is the point that he's going to make obedience cannot make you righteous. If it could, then somebody would have done it. So one, we cannot be perfectly obedient. Therefore, obedience cannot make you righteous. For on that basis, the people received the law. Now, you may have different translations, but most there's a few scholars who said that the law was the basis for the priesthood. But now that our understanding of the Greek has become better and better over the years, every translation is kind of moving away from that. Now, it's kind of divided. But they're now moving to the point where we now understand this. because this will, And this will be made by the context. The grammar, we now better understand, and the context makes it very clear. The correct way to understand this phrase is on the basis of the priesthood, the law was established. Now, we tend to think that the law, the Mosaic Covenant and the law, is the foundation of everything. And the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the moral code, all those things were built upon the law. But what he's going to make the point is that the priesthood is the foundation and all the real moral requirements sit on the priesthood. Because the only thing that can truly make you moral is the sacrificial lambs. So therefore, without the sacrifice, you can't ever hope to be a part of the Mosaic Covenant because here's what God made very clear in Deuteronomy and Exodus, Leviticus, over and over again. He really made it clear in Deuteronomy. If you do not perfectly obey the law, then death 
is what follows, period. Hey, you need to understand that. God makes it very clear that if you do not obey the law, He's going to bring death. If you've ever read Deuteronomy 29 and 30 and all that stuff, it is horrifically graphic. It is, I will bring famine into your land, and if you keep disobeying the law, then I will bring invaders in to oppress you, and then your people will die, and then eventually ends with massive exile and slaughtering. You're like, wow, God. Okay? And so the reality is, not obeying the law brings instant death. And this is the point that Romans is going to deal with. Like, what do you do with a God who didn't instantaneously kill everybody all the time when they violate the law? He's not just. But His justice is made visible through the cross. Because that's where He punishes the sins of the law. Therefore, He maintains His justice without killing us. So here's the reality. Therefore, if you don't obey the law, then the whole law falls apart. Remember, if you do this, then I will. And if you don't do that, then I don't have to. Which means if you don't obey the law, then the Mosaic Covenant is no longer valid. There is no more Mosaic Covenant. So how do we have a Mosaic Covenant for thousands of years? It's kind of like saying, if you get your homework done, we'll go get ice cream. But if your kids don't do their homework, then there's no ice cream. And that promise is gone for that night. You can never get that promise back. So if you obey the law, then I will dwell with you and give you life. But they didn't obey the law. I mean, they sinned in less than 40 days with the golden calf. And so yet the law kept going to the next generation. And then they all sinned. And the law kept going to the next generation. They all sinned. How was that made possible? The sacrificial system. Because they had a chance that though they couldn't obey through works they could demonstrate their faith through a sacrifice, and faith is what saved them. Even in the law that required obedience, you still had to have faith to be saved. And so the only thing that kept the law going was the sacrificial system. And who regulated the sacrificial system? The priests. Who were responsible for teaching in the moral code of the law? The priests. The foundation of everything is a Levitical priesthood. Now, I know we like to divide the law up into three parts. The civil law, and that's all the rules of like government and that kind of stuff. And the priesthood, which is sacrificial system, and then the moral code. And we like to say that we're no longer under the sacrificial system, because we all know that. If you really truly believe we're under the law 100%, then you all be going home and sacrificing animals tonight. Because I'm sure there's been a whole slew of sins today. Okay? But the fact that we don't sacrifice animals anymore means that you believe that we don't have to obey that part of the law anymore. And the fact that you're not having a king and priests that you go to anymore and you're not stoning people when they do these certain things and all that kind of stuff means that you don't believe you're under the civil law anymore. And of course, a lot of us don't want to get rid of the Ten Commandments. And I'm not saying you are. I'm just, we're going to unpack this. We don't want to give it a red ten commandments, so that's why we cut it up into three pieces and we say, there you go, we're just under the moral law still. But here's the problem. Paul says if you sin against one part of the law, you've sinned against it all. And it's not until the 1800s that the law was ever dissected into three parts. No Jew ever thought of it that way. And here's the other thing you realize. The Ten Commandments is ten commandments. It's ten sentences. If you read Exodus and the rest of Leviticus, it's all priesthood. It's all ceremonial. It's all sacrificial. It's all cleansing. The entire law, except for the Ten Commandments, has everything to do with sacrifice, cleansing, and priesthood. 
And this is the point that Paul is making. If you throw out the entire Levitical priesthood now, because it couldn't get you perfection, and it's obvious that Christ has replaced it because we're, we're not sacrificing anymore, so we all believe that, then what do you have left? The Ten Commandments. Well, that's a very, that's, how dare we cut out 99, probably more than that, percent of the law, and then keep the Ten Commandments and say, pat ourselves on the back for maintaining the law of God. The entire law was a sacrificial system in the priesthood. The entire thing was, except for this small, teeny little section in Exodus. And if you've seen how big Leviticus is and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, one paragraph doesn't really stand up to that in thickness. It's like keeping one sentence in the encyclopedia and saying, I'm maintaining the encyclopedia even though I'm throwing everything out except for that last sentence. No, you're not. And that's the point that Paul's making. And here's the other thing. Not only that, how many of you have done a good job of keeping the Ten Commandments lately? (laughs) So here's the reality. In fact, I guarantee you that you didn't keep the third one because I know we don't like like that I should not take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, it's way worse than that. Because the word name means character. And what it means is this is the character of God because God said this is what you will know me by and he gives his name, which is his character because names have everything to do with character in the ancient world. So what it means is you are not to take the character of God in vain. And if our point is to be the image of God and we're supposed to reflect who God is, then every time that you do not accurately reflect who God is in your life, then you're taking his character in vain. Which means I don't care if you ever never cuss and use God or Jesus' name in a cuss word, you're violating it every single minute practically. Every time you get frustrated with your kids, every time you cut off somebody, every time you don't help somebody, you just violate the third commandment. All right? And then we don't even have to talk about the covet thing, living in America. Okay? So the reality is, without the sacrificial system, are you even keeping that part of the law? So are you really keeping the law in any kind of way? No. And this is the point that Paul's, or um, the author of Hebrews is making. The priesthood was the foundation for everything. And we've all agreed, off the table, Christ is here to replace it. Which means he's replaced the Ten Commandments, too. It's gone. Now, please do not stop listening. I do not really mean that. Okay? I do not really mean that. I do in a way, but I don't. Okay? And that will be unpacked even more. Okay, so just hold on to that. Don't write me off as a heretic. Okay? Because I'm not saying anything different than Paul is not saying. Especially what he's saying is, if perfection had in fact been possible through Levitical priesthood, for on that basis the people received the law, what further need would we have been for another priest to rise, said to be in the order of Melchizedek? We needed a different order. Because that order did not bring perfection. So I'm not throwing out the Ten Commandments of God. We're just replacing that order with a new order. And this is what the the Sermon on the Mount is. He goes through those Ten Commandments again, but this time he ratchets them up. You, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, if you have any anger or frustration in your heart, you've already killed them. You've heard it said, don't have an affair. But I tell you, if you've lust after a woman or a man, 
romance novels, fantasies, anything like that. You've already lost it. So Christ is carrying the Ten Commandments over, but it's in a whole different light. It's in a whole different medium, and that's what we'll talk about. So there's the commandments of God still stand, but they're all in Christ now. So if I move from America to Russia, I'm under a completely different government with completely different laws. Are there some similarities? Yes. But there's some drastic changes. Now, that's an oversimplification illustration, but I think it makes the point. Okay, so I'm not undermining the commandments of God, but we are getting rid of the law. And I'll unpack that difference as we keep going, okay? Because I'm not going to unpack it without the scripture, and it's going to take him a while to do that. Okay, so the new order is this. The order is, with the priesthood, you were only a priest according to the law through a sacrificial system because a priest couldn't become a priest without a sacrifice. And they were priests through ancestry. The new order is an order where you're sworn in by God verbally and directly commanded Him. Not by ancestry, but you're sworn in. And you don't have to fit under all these requirements. Okay, so this is the new order. Not Aaron's order, but Melchizedek. For the verse 12, for the law must come, sorry, for when the priesthood changes, a change in the law must also come as well. And there's where you go. When the priesthood changes, the law also has to change. Period. There's not really a whole lot of ways to interpret that. <laughs> you change the priesthood, you change the law. So, if the Ten Commandments is part of the law, then you have to change that out too. If the ceremonial cleansings of dishes in the tabernacle are part of the law, then you have to change that too. Everything that you read in the Mosaic Covenant has to be changed out. Because the only thing that made the Mosaic Covenant clean was that you sacrificed for it and cleansed it. When you defiled it through your behavior or through your touch, you could defile things by sinning, or you could defile by touching something dead or bloody and then touching that thing. And the only way you can purify it again is through sacrifice. The only way that the priest could go in and atone for your violation of the Ten Commandments was through sacrifice. Period. So if the priesthood has been changed, then so has been the law. That's probably one of the clearest statements in Hebrews that we're no longer under the law, period. Now, it doesn't mean we're not under the commands of God because if you get into the First Testament, there's plenty of commands. Peter, John especially. So we need this, and I think this is where we get confused. We think, oh, I know we're not quite under the law anymore because of Christ and death and sacrifice and I don't do sacrifices anymore, but at the same time, God's always commanding us to do commands and obey Him in the New Testament. And of course, there's a lot of commands in the First Testament. And so we, we get those things confused. That if I throw out the law, then I'm throwing out the commands of Christ and God. And I don't want to do that. Or And then sometimes we think too, but if God gave His law in here, we know that God doesn't change His mind, then don't I still have to like obey those things, but then at the same time we're like, yeah, but I wear a lot of clothes that are 50% cotton and polyester, which is a violation of the law. And, yeah, when somebody gets raped, I'm not going to marry my daughter off to them if they rape my daughter, and that's part of the law. So there's a lot of things that we're really uncomfortable with and we don't want to do. 
But it's mostly because we don't understand them. Okay, we don't understand it. And that's a whole other lesson in itself. Okay, um, everything in Leviticus actually makes sense when you understand it. But too often it's just kind of weird to us. So this is what he makes very clear. There's a change in the law as well. And he doesn't say there is. He says there must. There has to be a change in the law. Period. There has to be a change in the law. Verse 13, Yet one of these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe, and the one from that tribe has ever officiated the altar. For it is clear that our Lord is descended from Judah, yet Moses said nothing about the priests in connection with that tribe. So basically he says this, Nowhere does the law ever say anything that Judah are priests. Judah is not allowed to be priests. We've kind of already made this point. Okay, so... Therefore, if we're going to a different priest from a different tribe, then we're violating it. Okay, now here's what's... I don't know. Well, that's another thing. I don't want to sidetrack us too much. Okay? Um, so he never said anything about a priest from Judah, which means we're not allowed to have a priest from Judah, yet we have a priest from Judah. So he's kind of saying the same thing. If you feel like it's kind of repetitious, like, yes, it is. One, big because we need repetition. And two, he's coming at different angles. Okay, he's kind of like, he's saying the same thing, but sometimes we need to hear it from different angles. Because one, is maybe that angle's like, ah, oh, I get it now. And two, the more angles you can prove it from, the more solid it is. Okay, so, so Moses never said anything about this. Verse 15, And this is even clear if another priest arises in the like of Melchizedek who has become a priest not by a legal regulation about physical descendant, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is the testimony about him. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so now you got this. you got God through Moses saying you cannot be king and priest at the same time. But now you got God through David saying you're going to be a priest and king at the same time. And so what do you do with that? So this is what he says, look, the law said nothing about a Judaite being a priest, therefore Christ is not allowed to be a priest. Yet God made it very clear that Christ is a priest. Period. So, the law must be temporary. The law must be temporary. If we have king and priest before the law, and God is proud and pleased, Melchizedek, and now we have Christ after the law, and he's king and priest, and God made it very clear, this is my son in whom I well pleased twice verbally in his ministry, let alone all the other times in Scripture. And then in the middle, between these two instances, you have a place where you're not allowed to be king and priest at the same time. Then if God was pleased through faith pre-law, and he's now pleased through Christ through faith post-law, then the law is a temporary thing. Does it kind of make sense? Because he can't go against the word of God. And the word of God says you're a priest and a king forever. And yet Christ is not a Levite. And a Levite is not allowed to be a king. And so if people can come to faith pre-law, then can come people come to faith post-law? And this is what he's already made. Abraham was declared to be righteous by faith. No law. Enoch walked with God and was taken up into heaven. No law. Now, the Jews have a loophole on that. They say, well, there's a lot of conversations that God had with Abraham that we didn't know about, so he probably gave Abraham the entire law then. 
Well, that completely defeats the argument that's being made here. It completely defeats the argument. And I think the Bible would have made that clear. If the law was that important, God wouldn't have made it sound like that's the first time they've ever gotten laws in Mount Sinai. And this is even clear if another priest comes in the likeness of Melchizedek. Once again, you have that likeness. He is not Melchizedek. He is like Melchizedek in that sense. Verse 18. This is where he gets even more specific. On the one hand, a former command is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now that's clear. On the one hand, we've set aside the former law. Why? Because it is weak and useless. Now, I did not say that about God's law. God did. Okay? Now, at the same time, Paul... And Jesus is going to make it very clear that the law is good. So this is what we got to do. What do we, what do, we do with a God who is saying the law is good and He's not come to abolish it? But then other places, God in the Scripture is going to say it's weak and useless and He has come to abolish it. In fact, Hebrews is going to come along and say it's obsolete. Okay, so now let's go back real quick to verse 11 again. And it says, on the Levitical priesthood, the law is built upon it. So grammatically, we now understand that the law is based on the Levitical priesthood. But at the same time, the context makes it very clear that that should be understood too, because if there's a change in the priesthood, then the law falls apart, so there's a change in the law too. And if the law is set aside for something better, then that makes it very clear what is the foundation to the law, the priesthood. Does that make sense? So grammatically speaking, we know that the law is based on the priesthood. But later in the context, it says it supports the grammar by saying you remove the law, sorry, you remove the priesthood, the law falls apart. Therefore, everything has been set aside and a new thing has come into place. So context and grammar all support that the law is gone. Okay? Now, once again, We're not throwing all the commandments of God out. And we're not saying that you don't have to obey and that there are no commandments. We're not saying that the law is completely gone. We're saying the law has been moved away and set aside and a new order and commandments has taken its place. This is not anarchy. This isn't anti-law. This is a new order, a new covenant, a new command. Okay, does that make sense? And that's very important because I think that will help us. Is How can we, God say that there are commands that we have to obey, but at the same time we're not under the law anymore? Because we have new commands, a new order. But I think what we'll see is, it's not God changing His mind and saying, oh, never mind, we're not going into Allah here. I've already mentioned that. Where Allah says, well, live at peace. Oh, no, now you should kill everybody. Oh, don't worry, because if I bring something that's different, then it's better. Because this is why Christ also said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So how do we deal with this? The law of God is good, 
yet it's set aside, and a new one's brought in, yet God doesn't change his mind. But at the same time, Christ says, I have come not to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. Yet Hebrews says, the law is set aside and is obsolete, because it's weak and useless. Okay? Those are the questions. Does that make sense? feels like God's contradicting himself. But it's not a contradiction. It's a... I just went blank. <laughs> a paradox. Thank you. It's a paradox. Where it means it looks like it contradicts itself, but it really does not. Kind of like God is three beings, but yet one. Jesus is man, but he's God. Predestination, free will. There are paradoxes. They're both true, but they, we just don't know how to swallow that. Okay? So, there's your paradox. Is everybody on the same page that Hebrews is making the point the law is gone? And a new order is... Now, if, if you're not ready to accept that yet and believe it, that's okay. The, there's lots of scripture we can plow through, but if that at least it makes sense. I've been wrestling with this for years, okay? So if one night is not enough for you, then so be it, because it wasn't enough for me either, okay? This is a hard thing to get your mind around. So I don't expect this to be neatly wrapped up in one night for you. I've been, this, I've been plowing through this for years. Um, and I don't fully understand it yet. I've come to a place where I, I understand enough that it's like, okay, but I'm sure there's way more to it than that too, so... Weak and useless, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. Notice how he keeps going back to that. What is the foundation to his entire argument? The law did not bring perfection. No one went to heaven through the law. No one's sins were completely atoned for their law. No one stopped sinning because of the law. The, the judgment and the wrath of God was not stayed because of the law. In fact, if anything, after hundreds of years of the law, the judgment of God got even worse. And his art, that's what he keeps coming back to. If you really think we're still under the law, then why has the law produced no fruit when it comes to perfection? So the ultimate way that you misunderstand this is how can the law be good but yet obsolete? Because you must understand the purpose of the law. The problem with our misunderstanding is not that we're too dumb to get it. It's not that we're... I don't know what it is. It's just that we haven't fully understood the purpose of the law. And that's important. That's so important. And I will unpack that. 